been very, very near and dear to my heart, as I'm sure it has to yours. So if you have your Bible, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. For the last time, this is the last message in this series on spiritual warfare. So you have endured to the end, right? So I'm going to begin a brand new series next Sunday called Dangerous Prayers, and that's going to last through the month of November. And then in December, I'm doing a series called The Gift, and it's going to be centered on the gifts that uh, were brought to Jesus, the gift of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, We've are familiar with those gifts um, at Christmas time, but we probably have never really delved into or thought about the significance, tremendous significance behind those gift, gifts, and then the gift of Jesus and the gift of the gospel. So Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to read this one last time, beginning verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Notice it says full armor. It didn't say half armor, part armor, full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You might want to underline that if you have not already. Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, that is when Satan unleashes all hell against you, right? Or he's, he's, he's warring against you, You may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your mind, with your feet fitted, I'm sorry, with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is where we often stop and we forget about what Paul uses in tying all this together. And, he says, that's a connecting word, and, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, the words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So let me just remind you, a statement I made in the very, very first message in this series is that everything that you and I are battling with, dealing with in the physical realm has its origination in the spiritual, unseen, visible realm, as Paul describes it as the heavenly realm. So um, in order for us to... um, receive a cure for what is we're dealing with now, whether it be our hurts, habits, or hang-ups, we have to go back to the root cause. And Paul reminds us that, listen, the root cause, what, the root cause is not your spouse, it's not your boss, it's not your friend, it's not that you drink too much, it's not that you're on drugs, it's not that emotion or even, uh, even yourself as being the problem. Those are manifestations of the problems Those are not the root cause of the problem. If you want to eliminate the manifestation of the problem, you have to go to the root problem, and the root problem begins on the spiritual level, not on the physical level. Does that make sense? So, for example, when I had a drug issue, um, you know, I tried as I might to stop, you know, physically. I tried to put in, you know, different safeguards and things like that. But I never really dealt with the root cause as to why I was using to begin with. And so that is a spiritual level. Remember, God created you in his image, your spirit, soul, and body. You are a spiritual being, right? You have a spirit, the inner core of you that 
connects with God where the Holy Spirit resides, your souls, your mind, will, and emotions. That's the spiritual side of you. Then you live that spirit through the soul, through the body, the physical body. So these physical manifestations that you're having, the root cause gets back to a spiritual issue. And that's what Paul says. This is what the armor is for. It is to tackle the root cause that is manifesting itself in some kind of physical or emotional or behavioral way. So the battle begins in the spiritual realm because that is where the victory has already been won by Jesus. All right, so we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from the platform of victory. As a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit of God inside of you. Everything that Jesus secured for you has already been secured and made available to you. It's not something you have to wait until you get to heaven for. You have everything you need in order to defeat the enemy who is warring against you. And so Paul gives us the secret for how we can do this. He told us, first of all, what to wear. He says, this is the armor that you need to be wearing. You need to have the belt of truth on. You need to have the breastplate, the helmet of salvation. Pick up the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith. You need to be engaged in the spiritual weapon. We spent six weeks just talking about each piece of the armor. So if you've missed any of those messages, pick it up on our website or on Facebook, uh, and, and that will help you in understanding that. But now Paul tells us how we are to put this on. This is what prayer is all about. Now, there are many types of prayer, okay? So there are prayers of intercession, for example. I might be interceding for you. I know you're going through a difficult time, and I'm standing in the gap for you, and I'm praying to God that, that God would move in your heart and your life and your need, whatever that might be. There are just conversations, right, that I just have conversations with God. It's just me and God, and we're sitting together and, and just conversing like I would with anybody else. Sometimes there are prayers of desperation, right? We, we are desperate in our lives, and, and man, we need a word from God, and we're seeking God's heart on something. The type of praying that Paul is describing here is what I want to call the warrior's prayer. He wants you to mount up like a warrior and rage and, and do war, do battle against your enemy. Stop believing the lie that you cannot change. I'd hear this all the time from, from Christian people. They'd say, well, that's just the way I am. I can't change. Been that way all of my th- life. That's the way I'll always be. Doesn't have to be. Shouldn't be. The Bible says every day we should become more and more like Jesus, right? Every year we ought to be getting, becoming more and more like Christ in character and in conduct. What is the character of Christ? It is the fruit of the Spirit. So the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, there's only one or two ways you can live. You either live according to the flesh and your inner um, desires, or you live according to the Spirit. Now, if you're an unbeliever, you have no Holy Spirit, therefore you cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit because it is a fruit of the Spirit, right? So only the fruit of the Spirit, only the Spirit can produce that within me. But if you are a believer, then that's what should become more evident. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, self-control, all of those things that the Bible says we can have the mind of Christ that leads to the character of Christ that we might live the life of Jesus to those around us. That is a lifelong process, as we talked about before, called sanctification. That is, God is sanctifying you. He's, he's making you holier. You're already positionally holy in Christ. Now he's making you practically more holy as you live for Jesus and walk with Jesus and learn from Jesus and follow after him. So 
I'm going to flesh this out in four ways. Number one is this, is what is the purpose of the warrior's prayer? What is the purpose of the warrior's prayer? Again, he begins that by saying, after he's given us the, the weaponry of the armor of God, he says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. So the word and, again, is a connecting word. And Paul is saying that prayer is vitally connected to the discussion of spiritual warfare. Because much of what's going to either be won or lost will happen as a result of whether or not you're praying. Right, so if you think you're going to mount up with the armor without prayer being involved and engaged in that process, you're sadly mistaken. You will be defeated. You won't make, much ground, make up much ground in your life. Prayer is the atmosphere in which you are to fight. It is the way that you activate the authority that is yours in Christ. Now, I have discovered over many years of pastoring now that there are a lot of people um, really don't actually understand prayer. Uh, when people truly understand the purpose of prayer, then you begin to see how it changes how you live, how you think, how you pray, whether you pray, when you pray, what your expectations are from prayer. Most people treat prayer like the national anthem, right? So before a sporting event, national anthem is played, it gets the game started, but it has absolutely no relevance as to what is happening out there on that field. And this is kind of the way we, we treat prayer is that, well, you know, um, before I eat, I ought to say a prayer. Before I go to bed, I may say a prayer. Before I travel, I ask for God's traveling mercies. So we, we just kind of softball those prayers out there, and, um, which is why I'm doing this um, series on dangerous praying, because, dangerous prayers, because I think that God probably sits back and thinks, is that all you got? Like, you think this is stretching for me? Uh, it, it, this really, this is, this is all, all the deeper you're going to go in your faith and your walk with me? And so here's how I define it for this message this, today. The purpose of the warrior's prayer is this. It is earthly permission for heavenly interference. Earthly permission for heavenly interference. Where do you get that from? I get it from the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so God says that the reason why we pray is because we're asking God to bring heavenly, giving, ask, giving God earthly permission to bring heavenly interference into my life, which begs the question, well, why does heaven need permission? Why do I ask, ask God and give him permission to do what he wants to do here on planet earth. Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. Number one is that's the way he's created the earth. Um, do you remember back when God designed the world to function, in the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve, placed them in the Garden of Eden, and it says that he gave them rulership over his creation. And so he enabled them to take a role and a part in what happens here on planet earth. And so God chose to give mankind rulership over the earth, and in doing so, he's done two things. Number one is he's given humanity um, the option of leaving him out. See, when God created you with free will, he's never forced himself upon you, so you have the option 
to rule over your own life and to leave God out of everything. You have the option to live independent of God with God not interfering in your life, not having really any, much anything to do with your life, if that is what you choose. Well, as a follower of Jesus, again, as James says, the reason you have not is because you have asked not. God says, I'm not going to force this on you, but if you want it, grant me permission to release it, and I will, man, I will intervene in your life. And here's the second thing is that he's, he's given mankind the notion of calling on him and joining him in rulership or leadership or a willingness to allow the Heavenly Father to come with divine interference into our lives. The bottom line is this. You can leave God out. You have that option. And many take that option. I don't want God interfering. I don't want, you know, I've got my plans and I've got it all worked out. God, I don't want you interfering with it. I, I, I've, I've got this. I don't really don't need you helping me. And then we get to the desperation prayers where we really want God to help us. And, and so we're asking God. We're saying, God, please, please, please come intervene in my life. You know, drop Every resource from heaven you have available into my life because I, I so desperately need you in the here and now. I need you to be a part of what's happening in my life in, the, in this present moment. But what prayer does is that prayer just, just releases God's resources that can run interference into your life in a good way. Now, let me just say this. Prayer is not... Prayer is never a, can you, never can you use force, prayer to force God to do anything. If God has no plan on doing it, you can pray till you're blue in the face. He's not releasing anything. So how do I know what God wants to release and what God doesn't want to release? Well, you have the word of God. You have the armor, right? You have the belt of truth. You have the sword of the spirit. You have the rema, the message of God, the promises of God. You have the character of God. You have the will of God. God has unveiled his will. 99.9% .9 of God's will is unveiled in his word, which is why you need that word strapped around you as the belt of truth. And the more you understand God's word, the more you understand his will, his design, and his purposes, the more effective you become in in prayer. So I know some of you are sitting back and thinking, well, I don't know about this, all this. Well, let's, let me give you an example because God gives an example in the Word. In the book of James, James says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman availeth much, which means it releases power. Then he gave an example. The example was the prophet Elijah. And if you go back in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah was told by God Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shut the heavens. No rain for three and a half years. You need to pray about that. And so at the end of the three and a half years, God sent word to Elijah, the Rima, the message of God, specifically to Elijah. And he said to Elijah, I want you to pray. And when you pray, I will release, you're giving me divine permission to release rain upon the earth. Elijah prays. God responds and it rains for the next three and a half years. Now, could God have sent that rain apart from Elijah? Absolutely. God can do anything he wants. There's not a single thing God cannot do if he so desires. But the way God has chosen to operate is that he always, if he's wanting to send something from heaven to earth, 
he puts on the heart of somebody to pray and to release that heavenly resource down here on planet earth. That's the way God has designed the world in which you and I live. That's why prayer is so, so important, and that's why Satan will do everything in his power to keep you off your knees, especially when it comes to your own personal spiritual warfare because otherwise he knows he's got you. And so the key is, again, Elijah has received this rema, this word from God to pray in such a manner. So don't miss this. Prayer is the work done in faith that accesses all that God has already planned to do. So when you're in the middle of spiritual warfare, listen, God's word is full of things that he plans to do. It's full of what um, God has already done on your behalf through Jesus Christ that is accessible to you but you need to ask for it. You have not because you ask not. Number two is this, is the precision of the warrior's prayer. You'll notice he uses the word all and pray in the spirit on all occasions. And so when the Bible says to pray uh, in, in such a manner, he's talking about every kind of prayer, every situation, every place. In other words, there is this continual conversation between myself and God. Now, it's, again, prayer, some people have the notion, well, the only way you can pray, you know, is to bow your heads, fold your hands, and pray. Well, let's say I'm in a spirit of prayer because the Bible says to pray without ceasing. Let's say I'm in a spirit of prayer while I'm driving. Probably not a good idea for me to drop my head and fold my hands, right? There's nowhere in the Bible that says you have to pray in that manner. You can pray with your eyes open, your hands outstretched to the heavens. You can be on your face on the ground. You can be on your knees. There are multiple different positions from which you can pray. There's multiple different ways in which you can pray. But if I'm in this continual sense of prayer throughout the day, for example, you know, I have a quiet time in the morning, but I continue that prayer process. If I go going into a meeting, I'm, I'm praying through that. If I'm counseling with somebody, I'm praying through that, asking God to give me wisdom and help me to see see uh, what the, the root cause of their, their situation, their problem is, and help them to unearth, you know, what it is they need to unpack for me to be able to sense what it is that God's wanting to do in their life. And so if you want to live the life of Jesus, you have to live the lifestyle of Jesus. And the lifestyle of Jesus is that Jesus often unhinged himself from the world, went off into a place of solitude and prayed. Often. Not just once in a while, not only when there was a dire need, but often, and there's a reason for that. We have a difficult time becoming unhinged from our cell phones, let alone getting unhinged from the world to spend time with God. You know, according to recent research, that you touch your cell phone an average of 2,167 times a day, that you spend an average of at least two and a half hours on your cell phone. We are attached bodily to our cell phones. <laughs> if you go off and leave your cell phone behind and you realize it halfway to work, how do you respond? Do you kind of have a little panic? Uh, your heart begins to race. What am I going to do? What am I going to do without myself? What am I going to do? It's obvious. Oftentimes, it's the very first thing we grab when we wake up from our, our sleep. Engineers are building apps on your phone, all of which are designed to get you, you know, um, addicted to that app. How many hours have some of you spent on Angry Birds when that came out? All right, so we've, we've graduated from there. 
Uh, and so, you, I mean, you can be on an app and you're playing a game and you can, and, but you look up the clock and you spend an hour, two hours, you can be going through your newsfeed and on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, whatever it is that you do. And, you know, a couple hours have gone by just like that and we don't even realize it. And so the point is that if you don't think you are addicted, if you're the exception to the rule, I want you to prove it to me and have a digital Sabbath where you shut your phone off and put it somewhere where you can't access it for 24 hours and tell me how, what kind of physical manifestations do you have as a result of that? Do you start breaking out in a cold sweat and you're like, your teeth are chattering from neurological withdrawal? I mean, you're just cold sweat. Sure. And so when you add to this, our hurried society, we're always busy, always moving, always doing. Uh, Pre-COVID, whenever you ask people, well, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine, but I'm so, so busy, so, so busy, so stressed, so busy. And you add all of this stuff together, and we are, we, psychologists call this hurry sickness. Um, here's some symptoms of hurry sickness. Uh, is One is when you're always busy, 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 and we're stressed, and we're is irritability. You're easily irritated when you have hurry sickness, right? You get mad easily, frustrated, annoyed. You go into the store, and the line's not moving fast enough for you, and you're tapping your foot, and you're and you know you're all out of sorts and the irritability, right? Because I'm in a hurry, I'm busy, I, I got so much to do, I'm so stressed, and 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 off we go, off into our tangent, and like little things irk you, and people have to tiptoe around you because of your low grade neg negativity, if not anger. Here's another one, symptom: is hypersensitivity. Hypersensitivity. All that takes is a minor comment to hurt your feelings or a grumpy email somebody sends to you that you read into uh, that maybe may or not be there, and it just sets you off, and any little turn of events throws you into an emotional funk, and you're just like depressed all day long. You can't hardly, you're depending on your personality. Um, it might show up um, as nitpicking, anxiety, depression, all kinds of things, ways that hypersensitivity manifests itself because of our overly busy lives. Or here's no one, restlessness. How many of you cannot relax? Even if you get a time to relax, you feel guilty for relaxing. Got any of those out here? Yeah. So my, it's so bad in my life. My daughter bought me a book last Christmas called The Elimination of Hurry. I think it was, it was the fearless elimination of hurry. I've read the book, didn't do me a bit of good. I don't really understand it. But it is, we're just like, we're, we're always in, you know, so we're restless. So even if you have a Sabbath day, you hate it. Because you're thinking, oh, I got this to do and this to do. I could be doing this, 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 and this. And, and uh, it's hard for you to have a quiet time with God. It's hard for you to focus your mind. It's hard to get all the, you know, the RPMs of your mind down to, to where you can even focus on something. And here's another symptom, emotional numbness. Some of you no longer have the capacity to feel somebody else's pain to empathize with people because you have emotional numbness because you're just so busy going, 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 going. And so there's just that constant numbness or escapist behaviors when we're so t tired that, um, wow, we just turn to the distraction of our choice, right? So I'm so hurried, 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 
and you, you can only go 24-7 for so long, and then you kind of like crash and burn. And what do you do when you crash and burn? Do you, you know, binge watch Netflix or you overeat, do you over, you know, spend or whatever it is that you might do as a result of your trying to, trying to refuel yourself? And here's the last one, isolation. You feel disconnected from God, you feel disconnected from others, and you feel disconnected from yourself. This is the world in which we live. We have wonderful, wonderful technology that was supposed to make our lives easier, and in many ways it has, but it has also stressed us to the max. And listen, your enemy knows that. Time with God? One more thing in my overly busy schedule. Ah, I've got time for that. And so we try to hit it on the run and, you know, just throw up a prayer here and there and wonder why we continually are being defeated in our spiritual day-to-day warfare. Why am I pointing this out is because your mind is the portal to your soul and what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. And in the end, your life will, is no more than the sum of what you give your attention to. That bodes well for those who were disciples of Jesus who would spend the bulk of their attention with him, right? And all this good and beautiful, wonderful, and Jesus poured himself into them. And, but it's very bad for those of us whose our attention is upon our 24-7 news cycle and outrage and anxiety and emotion and drama and everything else that comes along with that. And so the solution to your over-busy life is not more time. Because if you had more time, you just fill it up with more stuff. How many of you ever said, man, I wish there was, you know, 30 hours in a day. I could get more done. Well, no, you wouldn't. You just fill it up with more junk. So, and you wouldn't be any more rested because you're not going to sleep. So, you know, when I was in, in seminary and I was, you know, studying, reading about, you know, pastors in the past and missionaries and I was just like enamored with the fact, you know, these guys, they get up four o'clock in the morning, be praying for a couple hours and this, that, and the other. But, you know, it dawned on me, I was reading about people who were like back in the, you know, 13th, 14th, 15th century, they went to bed at seven o'clock at night. Of course they got up at four o'clock in the morning because they didn't have any electricity. So if you want to tap into what Jesus has available for you, here's three things that you need to have. One is silence and solitude. You have got to set a time, some silence and solitude with God, because what you want to receive is what? The rima of God, the message that God has for you at that moment in time. But if there's always noise in my ears, if there's always distractions in front of my mind and my eyes, it's going to be very, very difficult to hear at times what God is trying to say to you. This was no accident that Jesus spent a lot of time in solitude and silence. And here's the deal. The more busy Jesus became, the more famous he became, the more people were thronging him for healing and everything that he could offer to them became the more often he withdrew and spent time in silence and solitude. Not less, more. We're just the opposite, right? Because our lives are so busy, guess what's the first thing that gets cut out of our life? Silence and solitude with the Father. You need that. you got to have that. Because when Jesus retreated from a place of solitude and silence, man, 
he always came out with all kinds of clarity about his identity, about his calling. About, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only say what the Father tells me to say. And so there was clarity in where he was going, where he was heading, and what God wanted to do through him. If you don't set aside time to be alone with God, your relationship will eventually wither on the vine. It is that way in any human relationship. You know, I can go home and be a husband to my wife, but if we don't spend time together over the next 10 years, how long do you think she's going to hang around? Not very long. Right? So there's a disconnect, there's an emotional disconnect that happens if we're not working on the relationship and the same thing happens between us in our Heavenly Father. God wants you to learn how, how to um, utilize his weaponry in a very powerful and effective way. Now, how many of you have ever uh, been around a drunk? Now, I, I saved you. I didn't ask you if you've ever been drunk, but um, I wish I could say I have never been, but you know my story many times. Here's what I know when you're around drunk people is that um, as t the more they drink, the less they realize how much the alcohol is really affecting them and influencing them. So, you know, you, you so, so, let's say somebody's really shy. All of a sudden, they get like, they're chatty Cathy, you know. They're just like, like come alive. Their personality starts changing. And for guys, you know, uh, the more you drink, the prettier the women in the bar become. I and mean, it's amazing. Like, you know, that you first walked in there and thought, whoo, there ain't... Nothing in here for me, and then all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, they're looking really good to you. And worse than that is that the more you drink, the better you think you get looking uh, for those who are in, in the bar. And so again, the more you drink, the less you are aware of the influence that it is having upon your life. And then if that weren't enough, the drunker you become, the more stupid you become, the more mouthy you become, and probably end up in a fight. Not that I've ever done that. But... Uh, that's just the way it goes. Well, this is exactly what happens to us. We oftentimes, when we neglect time alone with God, we never begin to realize how much culture is influencing our lives over Christ. And over time, we begin to reflect through our lives more of culture and less of Christ. And so Satan has you. He's going to keep you encapsulated in those hurts, habits, and hang-ups that you're trying to find healing and deliverance from. Here's the second word is the word Sabbath, is that the word Sabbath means to stop. Stop working, stop wanting, stop worrying. It also means to delight in. And so it has this dual idea of stopping and, and of delighting in the Lord. So it's this 24-hour period of time that I unhinge from life and I refuel my soul through my time with the Lord and time and Sabbath. God set aside the Sabbath. He declared it to be holy because this is the way God created the world. Six days he labored. The seventh day that he rested, God God created us the same way. Six days we labor. There better be a day of rest in there because if there isn't, you're burning the candle at both ends and you will not be as bright as you think you're going to be when the end comes and you have burnout. Every pastor I've ever talked to that has, burnout, has had experienced burnout, every one of them, never take a Sabbath. Never take a day where they unhinge 
from their job, from what they do. Now, let me just say this. Doing Sabbath doesn't mean we sit in church all day long singing Hillsong songs, right? It's not what it means. Sabbath is, that is a part of, yes, we, we come, we worship, we celebrate together. The Sabbath is, may be for you also, it might be what brings you enjoyment, what refuels you. It might be walking in the woods. It may be hanging out with your friends for lunch or dinner or, or, or whatever it is that refuels your life. It's not that I, I can't do anything. You know, years and years ago, uh, you were chastised if you did anything on I remember my, my mother-in-law used to tell my wife uh, whatever she was doing that she didn't think she should be doing on, on Sunday. She would say, you know, if Jesus comes back while you're doing that, you're going to be doing that for all of eternity in heaven. Is that in the Bible? No, no, it's not. It's really not. So, uh, but, it, it, but what, what happens oftentimes is, is we don't take a Sabbath. We don't really take a day off. What we do, we say our Sabbath here is, uh, okay, we're going to have Sabbath today. Let's see, we've got these errands to run. We've got this house to clean. We've got to pay these bills. We're going to make a trip to Ikea. Then we're going to spend half a day putting together the thing we bought at Ikea and hope we have all the parts and we don't have to go back. And it, Right? That's not a Sabbath. It's not that, again, it's not that we're in church all day long. There are a lot of things, way that you can spend Sabbath. But what it's basically doing is putting a governor on the speed of your life. You know what a governor is? Right, so let's say I have a, a golf cart, and I only want that golf cart to go 25 miles an hour. You put a governor on it, so when it reaches 25 miles an hour, it cannot go any faster than that. This is what God's doing with the Sabbath. He's saying, listen, you guys are rush, 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 rush. You're at 90 miles an hour all the time. Let's put a governor on your life for one day so that your soul can catch up with your body. Let's refresh the soul, because if you take the time to do that, you are far more effective than if you don't. Just like every employer knows, if you work people seven days a week, their production is far less than if you give them rest. My dad is a, a superintendent engineer on uh, commercial construction. Um, these are any jobs anywhere from $50, $60 million jobs. My dad never, rarely ever does he work his men overtime because he knows if he gives them proper rest, they are far more productive on the job than if he would work them, you know, a lot of hours of overtime and they, they're stressed and their families are stressed and they don't get enough sleep and, you know, all, so on and so forth. Here's the last word, simplicity, and we're going to tie this up pretty quick. Simplicity is, we need simplicity and to slow down. All right, so how, how do you slow down your hurry? Well, let me, here's what I'm trying to do in my own life, okay? I told you my, my daughter bought me this book called The Fearless Elimination of Hurry. So um, I, I read the book. I am trying to implement some of it. So here's, here's some things I'm doing. Like, I'm trying to drive the speed limit. Do you know how hard that is? <laughs> and, and in Columbus, if you drive the speed limit... People will come up behind you and like tailgate you, honk at you, and make all kinds of gestures. You know, friendly love gesture. So it's hard for me to do that, but I'm trying to slow down. I, when I go into a store, I'm trying to pick the longest line rather than the shortest line at the cash register. Forces me, right? Forces me to slow down. I didn't say I liked it. 
I just said it forces me to try to rid myself of some of the hurriedness in, in my life. Um, when it comes to my cell phone, I, I schedule time, time lots that I can, like if I'm going to be on Facebook, all right, I, it's this, this X number of time, or if I'm going to um, check like emails, I don't look at emails all day long anymore. I look at them one time first in the morning and one time in the evening, nothing in between. So if you need me during the day, don't email me, okay? You need to call me. Don't check your phone the minute you wake up. 75% of people sleep next to their phone, and when they wake up, you immediately pick it up, and what do you do? You look at your news feed, and you go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all that, and before long, you, here's what you're doing. <laughs> do not let your phone set the emotional equilibrium of your day, because there's a lot of negative stuff in your news feed, Facebook, all that other stuff, especially at this time of the year, right? Election time. A part of dismantling your mental stronghold is you need three things. You need truth, you need grace, and you need time. This is what God's doing through the, I, I, I promise, the last two points are really, I'll be short. This, this is what God is in the process of doing in your life. Rooting out the lie-based thinking, injecting in your mind the truth-based thinking so that you can heal and be delivered from your hurts, habits, and hang-ups. You've got to have truth. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 13 about a guy who was the owner of a vineyard. He walked in the vineyard, looked at a fig tree. That fig tree has not produced one single piece of fruit for three years. He looks at his vine dresser and says, I want you to cut it down and throw it out. The vine dresser looked at the owner and said, listen, let me do three things. Let me dig around the tree. Let me fertilize it. Give it a year. If it hasn't produced anything, I'll cut it down and throw it out. So what is Jesus talking about here? Digging around the tree is that you have to dig up the truth. Remember, we, we don't want to tackle the manifestation of our problems. We want to tackle the root cause of our problems. And so that's where truth goes. The truth of the Spirit of God, remember the Word of God is like a double-edged sword that cuts to the bone and marrow to get to the truth as to what it is I'm actually dealing with. Like when you take your car to a, a mechanic that you can't fix, what does he do? He throws open the hood and he looks for what? The truth as to what is wrong with the car. When he fi figures out what's wrong, then he fixes it. This is what God's Spirit's trying to do inside of you. He's trying to get you to the root cause of what it is that's driving you, why you're behaving the way you're behaving, why you're thinking the way you're thinking, why you're feeling the way that you're feeling. And so you need the Spirit of God to get to the truth, and then you fertilize it. What is fertilize? Fertilizer is grace, right? It, it is about God's grace. This is the, one of the purposes of the church of God is this. If my finger got an infection, I don't cut it off, throw it into a drawer, and throw a book of anatomy in beside it and say, heal yourself, right? So, no, you attach it to your finger, and uh, if it got cut off, but if it's just infected, no, you, you take antibiotics, and, and the body begins to take over and do its thing. The brain is releasing chemicals, and the, all the organs of my body are working together to bring healing in this 
badly infected finger. This is exactly why God designed the body of Christ, because we need each other, because we're all in the same boat, but we tend to judge ourselves personally. I should be better than this. I shouldn't be dealing with this anymore. I should have been able to overcome this by now. And then as a result of that, we judge others. Well, why are you not living up to the gospel? Why why are you, you still dealing with those issues? And no, that's not what God, God designed the church to say, look, we are all in this together. We're in the same boat. We're trying to find hope and healing in Jesus Christ. So we need grace with one another as we're making that journey. You know, sometimes AA treats people better than the church does. I've been to AA meetings. Hi, I'm Greg. I'm an alcoholic. How do they respond? They clap. Hi, Greg. We are so glad you're here. We struggle with the same issue. What does the church do? What do you mean you're an alcoholic? Get your act together. You need to be over that by now. How can you call yourself a Christian and still be an alcoholic? We shoot our wounded. This is not how it should be. We all need grace. And then he said, give it time. There's no one-step process to change. There's no, oh, I went to marriage counseling once. My marriage is all better now. (laughs) Not going to happen. Oh, I went to see a counselor once. My life is transformed forever. No, probably not. The process of change takes time because you are rooting out a mental grid that has been a part of you from the day of your birth. And I don't know how old you are, but that grid's got that much of a head start on you. And now you're trying to root out that lie-based thought process and interject what is God's truth and to begin living that out. And watch this. Your emotions are used to what? Operating on the old system, and now you've got a new thought process system in your mind. And so what's your, what are your emotions going to do? Wants to keep pulling you back to the old ways, pulling you back to the old ways. And this is where you have to train yourself to go against the way you feel and continue to act on God's truth until your feelings catch up with you. That's a part of the process. So that is the precision of prayer. And so you need to take the time and to look for those ways in which God wants to use Um, his word and other people and time to bring hope hope and healing back into your life. Number three, the power of the warrior's prayer. He says we are to pray in the spirit on all occasions uh, or all times, your translation might say. So there's two primary words translated time, chronos, which just means time in general, and kairos, which means a specific time. So, for example, I said, hey, I want to meet you at lunch at 12.15. That's a whole lot different than if I were to say, hey, how about we get lunch sometime together? So Paul is very specific here. He says, listen, the days are evil. Satan's coming at you. He's throwing these fiery darts. And you know where your weaknesses are, where he is hammering at you. He says, you want to make the most of that time because it is then that you want the rema of God, a word from God, and then you pray that rema back to God, and God has permission now to release his resources from heaven to earth. And so here's what. The Bible says the spirit knows the mind of God, right? The spirit knows the mind of God. And the Spirit is the one who brings you in alignment with God's will. 1 John 5 says, listen, if I pray according to God's will, he hears me and he will answer me. This is why you need solitude. This is why you need to 
back down the RPMs. This is why you need to spend some quality time with your heavenly father so he can interject in your mind, in your heart, the rima of God as you pray that back to the father and the father begins to release things into your life that you absolutely need. Why is that important? Because we all have blind spots. You ever been driving your car and you thought that, you know, you looked in the mirrors, you know, like you were taught, you look both mirrors out the rear of your mirror and you're about to make a lane change and you're about to go out in the lane and all of a sudden somebody lays on their horn, you're about to run into them. What, were, what happened? They, they were in your blind spot. We all have blind spots. Listen, you do not know what it's like to live on the other side of you, but everybody around you does. I know we all think we're perfect and we got it all together, and if everybody just saw it my way and did it my way, we'd all be great, right? It just doesn't work that way. And sometimes we are so, so blind to the things that God wants to do in our lives because we think it's, it's okay, man, I've got, it, I've got it together. No, no, God wants to fix the blind spot. So here's the foundation of prayer is knowing what God has already said. That's how you access his authority. And here's the fourth one. The persistent of the persistence of the warrior's prayer is something that he says, keep on praying. Keep on praying. Listen, Satan, again, will use every device he can to keep you from praying. So if I was Satan, <laughs> and I and I and, and like, or, or I was one of his demons, and I'm like assigned to you, and I want to keep you off your your knees, or I want to keep you from praying, I would have a prayer elimination plan all laid out for you. I really would. Well, you say, well, what would that look like? Well, here's Satan's big lie. Here's one of the big lies, part of the elimination plan is this. You know, your prayers really aren't doing any good. You know that, right? And here's how I know that. And so he's going to start pointing some things out to you. Like, you've been praying for your marriage for a long, long time, and it's still hopelessly broken. Nothing's getting any better. Nothing's changing. In fact, it's getting worse. Your prayers really aren't doing any good. Why are you spending time praying? We're not doing any good anyways. Or your child. Man, your child's been in rebellion for a long, long time, and you just keep praying, you keep praying, and they're not getting any better. In fact, they're getting worse the more you pray Perhaps you ought to stop praying for them, and maybe they'll get their life turned around and get better. As you know, my wife and I, we prayed for our daughter for four long years before we saw a breakthrough. You don't think Satan come along in this four-year span of time? Why are you continuing to pray? It's not doing anything good. Stop this. Right? It's his plan, right? Your money. <laughs> oh, oh, you, 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 don't, you don't have enough to make ends meet? Well, you've been praying about that. Seen anything fall from heaven yet? Uh, has there been a heavenly check come down yet? Or, you know, like bills falling in your yard yet? Why are you praying? It's not really doing any good. Or maybe it's your health or maybe it's your addiction, whatever it might be that is, that is defeating you over and over and over again. And you've been praying, praying, praying. And you're, you're really trying to take the process seriously of overcoming this, but nothing seems to be changing. And so Satan just keeps hammering away at your heart. Because that's what I would do if I was him. And I'm pretty sure that's what he does to you. You been there? You done that? I the only one? 
you saintly people. <laughs> Here's God's truth, and I, I close with this. You know, um, Habakkuk was a prophet in the Old Testament, and the Babylonians were coming against Israel. The Babylonians were a ruthless group of people. They were warriors, and they were, they were, just, um, they were just bad dudes, really bad. And Habakkuk says to God, I've been watching all of this on the horizon, and I've been watching it all break loose. He said, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing anything? Don't you care about us? You're just going to watch us be defeated and destroyed by the enemy? Where are you? Where's all your promises? Where's your character? Where's the things that you said you did? With the things you promised to us, the, the covenants that you said that you cut for us, where, where is all this? And you know how God responded? This is on your outline. God says, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm going to tell you something. You stay persistent in praying because when the enemy's warring against you and he's filling your mind and your heart with doubts as to whether or not your prayers are doing any good, Go to the book of Revelation and see where God stores up your prayers in a bowl. And when the time is right, he will empty that bowl. He will divinely intervene in your life at the right time and the right moment and the right way if you will just stay persistent and pray. God has something he's going to do that even if he told you what he was going to do, you wouldn't even believe it, but he'll do it. Let's pray together.